So here we are. And this is really the heart of the retreat. We're about halfway in and halfway out. And this afternoon, I'm going to speak a bit about the third of the Four Noble Truths, or the Four Ennobling Truths. And this third truth is also, it's kind of the turn, right? It's the good news, part of the path. Does that sound okay? Yeah. Um, so as a little recap, the first noble truth is the noble truth of uh, suffering, of difficulty, of anxiety, of a wheel out of round, the truth of dukkha, which as Andrea spoke to yesterday, is to be understood. This is a path in which we are invited, encouraged to understand suffering. To understand suffering means that we need to turn toward it, not to get stuck in it, but not to look away, not to reject or deny this dimension of our human experience, which shows up in so many, many ways. And the second noble or ennobling truth is the truth of tanha, of clinging, craving, grasping, the truth of the cause of suffering. And this truth, as Andrea described yesterday, is to be released, let go of, relinquished. And today, this third noble truth is the truth of freedom. The truth that freedom is possible. That it's possible to not stay stuck and entangled in suffering, craving, grasping, aversion, confusion. Yay! It's possible. <laughs> really. It's also a little daunting, right, to hear that. Because then we think, but I'm still suffering. Am I screwing it up? You know, am I getting it wrong? Am I not there yet? <laughs> Just before we came over, I said to Andrea and Luigi, okay, I'm about to talk about Nibbana. Don't judge me on this talk. This was my nervousness, right? My feeling of it's daunting to try to talk about awakening. Like, really, I should stop right now. But there's a wonderful book from uh, Katagiri Roshi, an old uh, Japanese Zen teacher. And the title of the book was, You Have to Say Something. So here I am. <laughs> There's a way in which anything I say, it's not that it will be wrong, but I promise it will be partial. 
because words can only point. Words can only kind of help us do this radical reorientation that is at the heart of our practice and at the heart of what it means to wake up. To go, oh, whatever it was I was thinking about myself or somebody else or the world itself, that's not right. Something else is here, something else is possible. There can be a combination of disorientation, but also freedom in the releasing, in the waking up to recognizing our delusion, our confusion. So I have this story that I was going to tell, but something else keeps coming, so I'm going to try that instead. There's a beautiful piece, one of my most favorite uh, articulations of the Dharma. It comes from uh, Dogen Zenji, who was a 13th century Japanese poet, monk, scholar. And this is a, a piece from his kind of seminal work. It was called the Genjo Koan. And in Zen practice, you practice with koans, which are these kind of riddles, right? That you can't have a cognitive answer to. And the Genjo koan can be translated as something like the koan of what's happening right now. The koan of this moment. The koan of being alive as a human being. So here's what he wrote. When you sail out in a boat to the middle of the ocean, kind of like being in the middle of the retreat, when you sail out in a boat to the middle of the ocean where no land is in sight, you can't quite see where you started, you can't quite see the end yet, you're right there in the middle. When you sail out in a boat to the middle of the ocean where no land is in sight and you view the four directions, You look around. The ocean looks circular and does not look any other way. So for anyone who's ever been out in the boat in the middle of the water, you look around and there's an illusion of circularity. It feels like you're in a circle of water, big circle. When you sail out in a boat to the middle of the ocean where no land is in sight and you view the four directions, The ocean looks circular and does not look any other way. This is what it's like to be not free. But, he says, the ocean is neither round nor square. Its features are infinite in variety. It is like a palace. It is like a jewel. It only looks circular as far as your eye of practice can see at that time. And my favorite line, he says, all things are like this. So we walk around in our lives as human beings. I often use the metaphor of looking at the sky through a straw. Is that the sky we see? Sure it is. Is it the whole sky? No. And 
we at some point may feel the constriction of that circle that we're living in, the circle of ocean or sky, whatever metaphor you want to use. And we have an inkling, I know there must be something more. And it turns out that there is. And this is sort of the the premise and promise of the path, that we don't have to stay caught in our tight circle of views and opinions and perspectives and points of view, but to let go of that circle, hmm, it's hard. Because there's a reason that it's there. All of our cumulative karma, all of our history from this lifetime and if you are so inclined to believe of many, many lifetimes, comes into play to create the circle that we're looking through. And even if it, I think the technical word is sucks, even if it sucks, it's terrible, it's painful, it's familiar too. So we get kind of cozy there. But something says, ooh, tight circle, (gasps) right? And so, like both Andrea and Luigi have spoken about, uh, I too came into practice through what we might call the dukkha dharmador, <laughs> the dharmador of suffering. I didn't come because I thought, oh, I want palace and jewels. You know, I want to frolic in the ocean. I came in because I was frozen like an ice cube. Ooh, and it hurt. It was cold sharp edges. So the path is a path that offers this promise, this possibility of unfreezing. But we know what's needed to unfreeze asks us to melt, to soften to stop, if you're me, running around trying to control everything. And that running around trying to control everything because maybe uh, I didn't trust that things would be okay if I wasn't hyper alert all the time. Maybe some of you have some flavor of this in your own experience. And it takes a long time to build that kind of trust enough that we can begin even just a little bit to melt around the edges, you know, the sharp edges can start to soften and we go, oh, right? (laughs) I'm going to totally switch metaphors on you, but in the uh, Zen monastery where I lived, I used to talk about monastic practice was like rocks in a tumbler and everybody would come to the monastery with their rough edges you know, as unpolished stones. And then, like in a rock tumbler, all the rocks rub up against each other until what comes out after all that rubbing are these beautiful polished stones. So pick your metaphor. You could be becoming an ocean or a polished stone or a puddle of water from an ice cube, whatever you want. (laughs) There are many flavors. And in fact, there are many flavors of what it means to wake up. 
I think if you scratch a dozen Buddhists, you'll get lots of different answers. And it's not because one is right and one is wrong. It's because what we're waking up to is reality. What we're waking up to is how things really are. And how are things? (laughs) Many, many ways. So we may have a peek into how things are through one window. And then later on, another door opens. And they don't cancel each other out. Because like Dogen is expressing at the beginning, the ocean is vast. It has many dimensions. It goes very deep and very broad. And sometimes, you know, it's all sunlight playing on the water. And sometimes it's a fierce storm (laughs) and wind and churn. And probably all of us here have had a taste of some of those flavors over the last few days. So page one of my notes, of which I said exactly nothing of what I wrote down, is going right here. (laughs) So I remember when I first began to practice, uh, and as I said, I came in through this dukkha dharma door. I was uh, in my 20s and uh, struggling a lot. And I don't exactly know how I got there, but I just was looking for something. And maybe a friend pointed me to a meditative practice, and I knocked on the door of the Zen Center, and I was greeted by a bald man in a long black dress. And I thought, whoa, these people are weird. You know, I had a lot of judgment. And I went in and I started to learn a little about how you move and how you sit and how you chant. And my judging mind didn't go away, blah, 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 blah. I was judging the whole time. But something else was happening too. Something else was coming through. And I remember this very distinct feeling that even while my mind was saying, this is a ridiculous waste of time, and you should be going to do something productive. There's a little view into my mind, right? There was something else happening which was maybe in my heart. And in my heart what was happening was whatever it is they've got, and I had no idea what it was, that's what I want. And I trusted that enough to keep stepping forward keep stepping forward, keep stepping forward, even as my judging mind (laughs) was blaring. I had no idea what I was getting into, and probably if I did, I would have left immediately. But I'm glad that I didn't know, and I'm deeply grateful to the people there who were kind and patient and encouraging and kept inviting me to step in a little further. Because somewhere in me, I knew there had to be another way. There had to be another way. There's a famous 
story about the Buddha who is uh, sitting under the bow tree, firm and resolute, and he's not going to move until he wakes up. I don't know if he knew what he was getting into either, but that was his vow. And while he's sitting there, the story goes, it's unclear if this is historical or mythical, but he's besieged by the armies of Mara, Mara the evil one. You'll recognize Mara as I talk about him, her, them, it. Mara, Mara is those voices of doubt, of confusion, of judgment. So in the mythic story, you know, Mara's shooting arrows at the Buddha. It's a beautiful description. It says that as the arrows, as Mara's arrows come toward the, he's not even the Buddha yet. He's just some wandering guy suffering along, wanting to wake up. His power of mindfulness has built enough that as the arrow comes, like this is a complete waste of time, you should go do something productive, he says, ah, I see you, Mara. He sees his own habit patterns and judgments. And the beautiful description in mythic language is that the arrow bursts midair from be- being an arrow, it transforms into a lotus flower and um, showers him with fragrant petals. This is meant to be sort of a description of the power of mindfulness. But Mara doesn't give up. Sometimes, as we've been describing here, just being with or noticing what's happening isn't enough. So Mara keeps going. He's tossing all kinds of crap at the Buddha, trying to knock him off his seat. And at some point, uh, because he's been practicing for a while and he has very strong powers of concentration and awareness, uh, he's able to deflect most of what Mara throws at him. And at some point, Mara comes up and whispers in his ear and says, who do you think you are? He didn't say it kindly. Like, excuse me, sir, what's your name? It was, who do you think you are with a tone I imagine? More like, who do you think you are? You might have had that voice or that tone some, at some point in your own practice. Like, what the? I've had this to myself. You think you can meditate? You think you can wake up? Come on, that tone. So when Mara comes to the Buddha with this question, or the soon-to-be Buddha, uh, he doesn't, he's not reactive. He doesn't say, leave me alone, or I'm just doing the best I can, or um, anything like that. And actually, without the tone thing, you know, the attitude that Mara's bringing, is kind of a good question. It's a very deep, spiritual question. Who, who do you think you are? And in the story, that Buddha's response is that he reaches down and touches the earth. This is a, uh, not an answer that necessarily makes a lot of cognitive sense to us. But somewhere in us, maybe like somewhere in me, 
when I came in to this weirdness of the San Francisco Zen Center, something got touched. Reaching down and touching the earth is a way of saying, it's okay. Luigi was uh, saying the other night so beautifully in the evening reflection, good enough. I'm good enough. I'm good enough to take up this little patch of ground that I'm sitting on. And that was Mara slinked away. (laughs) Who do you think you are? This is a central question in our practice. And it is at the heart of our confusion, of our delusion, that when we don't look closely, we just assume that there is a solid, separate, permanent me over here. And it's not until we begin to sit and practice with all of the instructions for how to get ourselves in the door that we've been trying to offer that we can begin to go, oh, it's not as solid as I thought. Oh, all those beliefs and ideas and opinions that I've been lugging around, mostly not even aware of. If you don't see it clearly, you just think it's true. (laughs) All those people are weird, or they're wrong, or I'm wrong, or there's a problem here, or whatever your mind is saying, right? If we don't see and begin to see through what's arising, we just believe it. That's called being caught. When we begin to see clearly in this way, then things can begin to melt, soften a little bit. We can see that whatever our little circle is that we're looking through, it's not the only way. But as they say, the only way out is through. We don't get to a wider circle by uh, imagining or wishing we're trying to convince or figure out. We actually have to go right through the gritty heart of it. All of that what we would call sort of karmic conditioning. It's, it's uh, both personal and universal. It's universal that we all have it. And it's deeply personal. It's different for each one of us. One of my favorite descriptions of awakening, it's not one that is um, super known or popular, but I like it a lot. And it's a description of the Buddha uh, sitting through what's called three watches of the night. And this Again, this is kind of mythological language. It's probably more than one night. (laughs) Um, And what's described is that at each of these three watches of the night, he has a kind of um, dimension of seeing into a dimension of reality. So he's seeing more and more clearly some aspect of how things are that illuminate, that start to melt some of those 
hard edges that bring a sense of freedom. So the first uh, watch of the night is that he sees, uh, this is on the next page, yeah, that he sees, uh, it says, his wisdom eye opens and he sees his own karma. This is a way of saying he begins to see into his own patterning. And it's described that he sees this over many, many lifetimes for himself. So again, you may believe in many, many lifetimes or not. That was a common way of understanding at his time. But probably you can begin to, f- to see for yourself that you're starting to catch on to some of your own habits of mind, of heart, of body. This is kind of this first watch of the night, that there's some wisdom that begins to awaken by not just being caught in what's happening, but being able to see it clearly, seeing your own karmic patterning. And most of the time, that karmic patterning, you know, it's not pleasant. Maybe for some of you it's pleasant. For many of us it's not. There's another um, line from Dogen. He says, Human beings are deluded about enlightenment. We're confused about what it is. Buddhas, he says, are enlightened about delusion. (laughs) So when we start to see our karmic patterning, this first watch of the night, that's our, our waking up to our delusion. Sorry if this is bad news, if you came because you wanted, you know, to kind of be floating off the ground and have light and rainbows and stuff like that. But this is what he says, Buddhas are enlightened about delusion. They're onto themselves. And maybe this has happened even a little bit for you. You've learned something about your habitual ways of seeing, of believing, of assuming, of judging. So this is the first watch of the night. It's like the initial wisdom eye that opens The second watch of the night is that he sees that this is not true just for himself, but for all beings. That just as you are caught in your own patterns of karma that are unique to you, that all beings share this kind of suffering. And I think of this as the first watch of the night, the wisdom eye opens. The second watch of the night, the great heart of compassion opens because we start to see first, oh, I'm not alone. Yeah, everybody else. And then we start to see other people and think, oh, or feel, oh, yeah, they suffer too. And then our relationship to ourselves begins to shift. Our relationship to other people begins to shift. So we have insight into our own karma, and we have this kind of blooming forth of kindness, of compassion toward other beings who, before this, if you're me, were probably mostly just annoying. (laughs) That was kind of my kind of basic attitude toward other people. (laughs) 
Have you, has anyone found anyone here annoying? <laughs> Even though they're not talking or anything, still, it's like people are so annoying. All right, so we start to have that softening a bit. So the first watch, seeing our own patterns. The second watch, opening to recognize that others, too, are like us, that we all suffer, even if it's in slightly different ways or in different flavors and colors and shapes. And the third watch of the night is uh, that he wakes up to what's called, the technical language for it is, dependent co-arising. He, like, sees how it is that a moment of experience comes into being. And I'm not going to be really annoying and bore you with the 12-step chain of how this dependent co-arising works. But what I will say is that at the heart of that teaching is the understand, it's the breaking down of the binariness of the mind. The binariness of there's me and there's you. There's self and there's other. There's us and there's them. There's right and there's wrong. There's he and there's she. There's like that. Because that's what the mind does all the time. It's going box, 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 box. It's just doing that because otherwise you think, I'm just going to be flooded and overwhelmed by the aliveness you know, of life itself. So it's good sometimes we have some categories. Like I always think traffic light, green, yellow, red. It's very useful. But it's not true, like, right? It's not, a, it's not reality. It's just a convention that's useful. And it's only useful because it's going to help avoid suffering. So we adapt these conventions, and then, but then we believe them. Then we get boxed into this kind of binariness. So first watch is about yourself, the second watch is about all other beings, and this third watch of the night is really about understanding the world itself, this kind of non-binary, non-divisive world. As I was reflecting on this, I thought, wow, we could use some more of that right about now. We look at our world now and it is enormously divisive enormously us and them. This non-binary world is a world that is seen through the eyes of love instead of fear. The eyes that will allow us to let go of those hard edges of who we take ourselves to be, to feel our fluidity, to feel our meltingness, that we're running water, we're fluid, we're not frozen ice cubes. So there's a couple things that I particularly love about this description of waking up, these three watches. And one is that it's pointing towards something that it's not said explicitly, but it's pointing to this understanding that uh, waking up isn't, as I used to think, like this thunderbolt event that's going to happen. And now I'm awake. 
It doesn't mean that there can't be or won't be or haven't been uh, powerful experiences that wake us up. But it's not a once and done process. It's a process that unfolds over time, as is described here. So we could say three watches of the night. We could say three weeks or three months or three years or 30 years or three lifetimes. It happens over time. I'm saying this out loud because I hope it takes some pressure off. Like you don't have to finish the whole program by Sunday morning. (laughs) And any little piece of it that you that gets illuminated for you is great. We're not really trying to get to the end. We're trying to be in the process of waking up. And the more that we're grabbing for the end, you know, well, there we are. The second noble truth, we're grabbing. This is suffering. Which is why the doorway is always right here. The entry point is right where you are. And to be, as Andrea has been saying uh, many times and so beautifully, to be right where you are, to enter and be curious. What is this? Not just curious in your brain, but curious with all of you. What is it? Oh, it's resentment. Oh, resentment. Okay, and what does resentment feel like? Like really give it to yourself, the whole thing. And as we've been saying, if it becomes overwhelming, if we can't stay with it, then put it down. Do something else for a while. It's it's actually not going to go away. (laughs) It'll be waiting for you later. But maybe the next time you come back, there's more stability or you can come through a different doorway or you like that. And then a little more can get metabolized. The second thing that I really like about this particular iteration of description of awakening is that it, it's pointing to, it's not obvious in the teaching the way I just described it, but it's pointing to the fact that wisdom, we're walking a wisdom path, this seer cleaning, this clear seeing <laughs> of things as they are. Or as uh, Suzuki Roshi, the founder of San Francisco Zen Center, used to say, clear seeing of things as it is. <laughs> there you have that non-dual description. Things aren't so separate. So there is wisdom. There's a waking up. There's insight. There's illumination. There's aha. And some of that aha we just are not happy with. (laughs) Right? But nonetheless, there's aha. But all of that wisdom is in service of compassion. All of that wisdom is in service of connection. These are the second and third watches of the night. I was very confused about this point myself for a long, long time. 
So I'll tell you a little story about it. Uh, when I was much younger and practicing, I took up a practice for a while. This is when I was practicing Zen, and I took up this practice with a friend that we called putting others first. So whether it was like letting someone go first in line or letting a car go in front of you or like that. And um, I, was, I had maybe more than just a little bit of pride about this practice that I was doing because like, who could argue with this, right? It seemed so good. The reason that I was doing this practice was that I thought that if I'd put others first, it would help this solid sense of self kind of soften up a little bit. So I went to my Zen teacher and I told him this story, expecting a big pat on the back. <laughs> I said, well, I'm doing this practice called putting others first. And I kind of waited for him to tell me how great that was, and he didn't say anything. I thought, oh, he must not understand. <laughs> so I explained a little further and said, well, I'm doing this practice of putting others first, and here's why. Because, and I got really excited, because I think if I'm putting other people first, then it will help unravel this solid sense of self that I have. And he just, <laughs> he just looked at me for a long time. And I thought, oh, you really must not be getting it. <laughs> and finally, after this long, awkward pause, <laughs> he looked at me and he said, this is with me 20 years later, right? 30 years later, maybe. He looked at me and he said, someday you will understand that you have it completely backwards. I was so mad. <laughs> I just thought, he just doesn't understand me. Who could not, you know? And I was, I was really miffed, you know, a little narcissistic poke for me. But I trusted him, even though I was really mad at him for a while. Um, I trusted that there was some wisdom in him. And I also trusted that he really loved me. I trusted, by that I mean, he wanted the best for me. He, he wanted me to wake up. And so once I got over my, you know, narcissistic snit, I started wondering a bit. I brought this quality of curiosity, like, I wonder what, what he's pointing to. And I didn't, I didn't know. I hung out in that, like, I don't know, there must, there's something I'm not getting here. That was a much more humble and vulnerable stance than I'm right and he's wrong. He's a jerk or I'm a jerk. Somebody's a jerk if there's pain, right? <laughs> so I just kind of kept it on the back burner. And there's a practice in the Zen temples of chanting every morning what's called the Heart Sutra. And the Heart Sutra is a short version of a very kind of esoteric, a set of teachings that come out of what are called the Prajnaparamita literature. It's wisdom literature on the, the teachings on emptiness. So I was quite sure that if I understood emptiness, I would be all figured out. So here's the, the, the opening line I'm going to paraphrase of this chant that we did every morning went something like this. Avalokitesvara, who's the bodhisattva, the figure of great compassion, Avalokitesvara, 
was practicing deeply and saw that everything was empty. And in seeing that, all suffering disappeared. So it was pretty clear, right? You figure out emptiness and all suffering disappears. So I was on that project, reading and studying and asking questions like that. And then one morning, we got up at 3.30 in those days. Uh, We were in the hall and doing this chant. And I heard the words, and the words did a somersault in my mind. And a whole time I had been hearing Avalokiteshvara perceived that everything is empty and relieved, thus relieved all suffering. And all of a su- and I'd been going, emptiness, emptiness, what's that emptiness? And all of a sudden I thought, ah, oh, it's compassion. Avalokiteshvara is the representation of compassion. It's compassion that wakes up. Completely flipped my whole understanding of things on, its he- on their head, its head, my head. Anyway, I got what he meant when he said, you've got it completely backwards. I thought the point was to be really smart, <laughs> to understand. But the point is to understand in service of compassion, in service of awakening this ability to meet our experience in a way that stops dividing and conquering, that stops separating, that begins to build this capacity to connect, to care, to be kind. So this kind of... um, somersault, I called it, this kind of shift in our understanding is often uh, part of the flavor of real insight, of, you know, sort of what we're calling enlightenment or awakening, when suddenly what we thought we understood changes up, and we see things with fresh eyes. We see things in a way that is perhaps surprising. There's a very sort of pith little description of this from uh, the poet Rumi. He says, We are not a drop in the ocean. We are not a drop in the ocean. We are the ocean in a drop. Feel that turn? It's a shift in perspective. I'll read you one more. This has been one of my one or two most favorite uh, poems of late. And this is a poem from a new translation of the Terigata, which is the uh, early poems of of awakening from the uh, early Buddhist nuns. It's some, some people are considering that it is the oldest a spiritual text of women's voices. And uh, as a friend and colleague, uh, Maddie Weingast, who has done a new translation of these poems, they're just extraordinary. 
and uh, the, his book is coming out in February. It's called The First Free Women. The First Free Women. So this is a poem from one of the nuns whose name is Damadina. And uh, she describes this shift. She says, For so long I've thought only of the river's end. For so long I've thought only of the river's end, like getting to the end of the path. Wherever that there is for you, wanting to get there, she was with you, <laughs> wanting to get there. For so long I thought only of the river's end. Then one morning I set my paddle down to watch the sun rise over the eastern hills, only to find myself floating somehow gently upstream. This is not what we expect. Hmm? For so long I thought only of the river's end. Then one morning I set my paddle down to watch the sun rise over the eastern hills, only to find myself floating somehow gently upstream. I promise it was not what I expected. <laughs> so part of the premise and the promise of the path of this third noble truth of this possibility of freedom of awakening is it's not going to be what you expect. So if you find yourself disoriented or with some kind of mind or heart or body somersault, as I described it, you're in the neighborhood. <laughs> so I just have one final piece that I want to uh, sort of say out loud about this process of realizing Nibbana. Right? So this third noble truth, if, if uh, dukkha is to be understood and tanha is to be released, let go of, nibbana, awakening, is to be realized. And I love that word as a description because to realize means literally to make real or in the language of the Buddha, to find out for yourself to discover in your own real experience what's true. Not what your mind tells you, what, not what your history or your family or the culture. Or, no, you find out for yourself. This is how we make real, how we know for ourselves in this way. So this realizing of Nibbana, one of the ways in which we get re reorganized <laughs> that our perspective shifts is that we start to get that it's not a solo event. That this idea of a separate solid me over here, you know, paddling upstream to try to get to the end, this is not how it is. That, as my dear friend and colleague Larry Young has written, we wake up together. That's not just a nice way of talking about it. 
It's actually how it is. And it's how it is because it's how it is. <laughs> Meaning, the, the, we can understand uh, emptiness, the truth of no separate solid thingness, through our wisdom eye as emptiness. But through the heart of compassion, we see that same truth as the truth of our connectedness. The truth that I can't wake up and be free, not completely, as long as other people still suffer, because we're all part of one thing. I can do my part, but my part includes, again, as Andrea has been speaking to, it includes not just me, 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 me. It includes my engagement with the world. It includes my recognition as the Buddha recognized on the second watch of the night that, oh, everybody else, there's, there's suffering too. And as he realized in the third watch of the night that it's not just about an individual project, that there is a system, there's a collective, there's a world which if we look at our world now, has divisiveness and separation and is also fraught, filled with greed and hatred and delusion. And so it's not enough to stay in our ice cube tray and wake up all by ourselves. That we begin to feel, feel actually, the truth of the suffering of the world. And it becomes a natural response to want to do something, engage. And we're not always going to engage <laughs> skillfully. That's why it takes a long time. But we do the best we can. And as we go, we keep learning. We keep, just as we can gain skill in meditative practice, we can gain skill in relational practice. We can gain skill in engaging with the world practice. These are just sort of increasing layers of complexity, right? It's a much more vulnerable place to sit, to recognize this connectivity, because we're not in charge. We do our part, and we have at some level to trust that there's something more than us here. And that something more is not just suffering. That there's an innate goodness and connectivity that we can begin to see and feel and taste and believe to make real for ourselves. It's so hard. Really, I mean, it's so hard, we really can't do this by ourselves. The things that are the most difficult aren't meant to be done alone. The, the biggest issues that we face in our world, you know, a warming planet, you know, systems of racism and oppression, growing economic disparity, I'm not going to be able to fix that, but we can. There's a we in it that we can begin to uh, lean into.
to cultivate the capacity to engage with. So I'm going to close with a story that is a little, um, it's a pointing instruction. And it is um, like when I walked into the Zen Center at first and my mind was going, what the, you know, what the heck, what's going on here? Um, But something else was touched. For me, this story is very similar in that it's pointing to this truth of connectivity in a way that even though my mind didn't, doesn't quite get it, something resonates quite deeply for me. So I'll offer it and see how it lands for you. This is a story uh, about a guy named uh, Jarvis Masters, someone you may know of. He was a, um, a prisoner on death row for many, many years. And in his time, when he, while he was incarcerated, he got interested in Buddhist practice. And he ended up taking bodhisattva vows with a Tibetan teacher. And part of that vow for him was to um, do no harm, to not engage in harm doing. So the story is that one day he was out on the yard at San Quentin, a prison in the, near San Francisco, And um, it had been raining out in the yard, and there was a seagull that was kind of paddling and splashing around in a puddle. And one of the other inmates picked up a stone or something like that and was prepared to throw it at the bird, to harm the bird, and try to kill it. And um, Jarvis kind of involuntarily, perhaps because he had taken these vows, he uh, reached up and grabbed the guy's hand this is not a good thing to do, right? He reached up to stop him from throwing the stone. And, of course, his action started to escalate uh, the other guy's aggression. And the other guy was like, what are you doing? Don't grab me. And who do you think you are? And what the hell are you doing? And pretty soon there was a whole group of inmates circling around the two of them as this guy was expressing his upset for being grabbed and anger saying, why did you do that? Why did you do that? This guy was saying to Jarvis. And the story is that out of Jarvis's mouth uh, came the words, I did that because that bird has my wings. I did that because that bird has my wings. And everything stopped. The fight de-escalated and people started talking to each other in a different way and they started laughing and talking to each other. And of course, at one level, what? Right? At our cognitive thinky level, it doesn't make any sense. No, I don't have wings. And that bird certainly, right? He's pointing to this deep understanding of our connectedness. A deep understanding that harm done to any one of us is done to all of us. And in some way, all these guys on the yard at San Quentin understood and stopped. Put their reactivity down. For me, this is 
uh, a story that just beautifully describes a surprise of what's possible for us as human beings. That we too can begin to drop in, settle in, feel in to our direct experience deeply enough that doing harm doesn't feel possible anymore. That we understand our deep connectedness as we deeply connect to ourselves with all other life, all other beings, so much that our actions come out of that understanding, our wise and compassionate actions. So in the spirit of these three watches of the night, please uh, don't use this (laughs) in some way as I did leading up to this talk to intimidate yourself and think, I should be there already. It's got to be really good. Uh, What's wrong with me that I'm not there yet? Uh, I'll never get there. That's, you know, like me at the Zen Center with the judgy mind going, it's going to go, let it go. Like, okay. And then keep being with yourself. Keep using the tools that we've been offering to uh, learn incrementally as we go how to be with difficult experience, surprising experience, confusing experience, exquisite experience. We're not trying to have some particular thing happen. We're trying to learn how to widen that circle, how to open the sky, how to expand the view of the ocean so that we too can have a felt sense of freedom and to trust, as the Buddha said to his congregation, which I love because I imagine that his congregation, maybe like some of you, was having just a little bit of doubt. (laughs) And he said, it is possible. If it weren't possible, I wouldn't ask you to do it. So let's sit for a moment or two. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.